Well, good morning, Community of Grace. I am, good morning. I'm very excited and honored to be up here this morning presenting a message from God's Word. And I just have to brag a little bit that it was my daughter who said she would bring Jesus her specialist jewel. So proud, proud parent moment there. <laughs> now, some of you who are used to seeing my face uh, up on the screen might be wondering if I have some grand science experiment ready to be pulled out to make my point this morning. Unfortunately, I will not be breaking eggs, lighting things on fire, or popping any balloons today. But I do need to give you a fair warning. I just might burst some bubbles and possibly wreak a little havoc on your perfect nativity scene. First off, I would like to know how many Marvel fans do we have in the room? Any Marvel comics, movies? All right, yeah, you're my people, okay? How about Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia fans? We got two hands up from Pastor Angie. All right, <laughs> solid. How about any fans of that one book and movie series that shall not be named in church? Anyone willing? Oh, yep, okay. If you don't know what I'm talking about, now you know who to ask. So back when I was first interviewing for the children's ministry position here, one of the questions that I received at the interview was, what do I like to do in my free time? And in that moment, I instantly forgot every single one of my hobbies. My brain could only think of the one thing that I had heard you should never say in a job interview. I like watching TVs and movies. <laughs> now, I didn't just leave it at that. I continued by explaining that I just really, really love a good story because stories teach us things. In fact, one of my favorite things to do with an episode of a good TV show or a good movie is to analyze the biblical themes that I see in the story. I love asking the question, how could I use this story or this character to teach the timeless truths of Scripture? Ask me about the animated movie The Lorax sometime, and I will give you an entire sermon on what it means to be a disciple. <laughs> Another day. Now, as you may know, as Pastor Angie said, today we are celebrating Epiphany, which is the traditional celebration of the wise men's arrival in Bethlehem to worship the Christ child. And they brought him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The story of the wise men has been told and retold for 2,000 years. We all know about how three wise men thought to maybe be kings set off from the far east, following a miraculously bright star that guided them for years as they rode their camels through the treacherous desert, all to pay their respects to a newborn king. Then they traversed back to their homeland by a different route because an angel warned them in their dreams not to return to Herod. It's a great, sweeping, epic story that has captured the imaginations of the readers of Matthew's gospel from the time of its writing. So as I began preparing to write my message this morning, I thought I would do some research to back up the story that I thought I already knew pretty well. One of the first books I came across was The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. And I thought, great, this should give me some great historical facts, and I'll just kind of pepper them into my sermon here and there. And so I began to read. You can imagine my shock when I began to discover that for the better part of the last century, many New Testament scholars have taught that the epic story of the wise men was completely fabricated by Matthew, just as all of those stories, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, 
our fabrications as well. In one article I read, archaeologist Judith Weingarten said this, even when the stories are only half believed in our times, they are comforting. Who wants to know that there was no star, no manger, no magi? Party poopers and historians. As someone who believes that the word of God is a faithful retelling of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this was a disheartening discovery. This doubt among scholars largely came about due to people asking the right questions, like why Matthew never mentions camels, or the number of wise men, or the length of their journey, or the brightness of the star, or why Herod had no clue what star the wise men were even referring to. And then deciding, these scholars decided, that the answers to these and other questions were too implausible or too supernatural to be historically factual. Once the story was dismissed as a fable, most scholars wouldn't touch it again, even with a 39 and a half foot pole. Reading this, I felt the same dismay that the wise men likely felt at finding out that the newborn king was not in the palace or family of King Herod, where they expected him to be. Here I thought I was all prepared to share a great sermon about the wise men's year-long, unprecedented journey through uncharted territory and how it mirrored our unprecedented journey through the year 2020. And I promise that's the last time I'll use the word unprecedented this morning. The only problem was that I was relying on my own preconceived understanding of the story. The lesson was clear. I needed to take a fresh look at God's word and what it actually says, and not what I think or wish it said. I cannot tell you the number of times that I have seen a meme or read an article or heard a speaker that twisted scripture to support what they wanted to say rather than what God has already said. And what happens when we twist God's word to fit our own agendas or our own worldviews is that the world turns away from its truths and dismisses it as nothing more than a fabricated fairy tale. You see, what happened with the story of the wise men is that as Christianity began to spread north, they began to interpret wise men from the east differently than Matthew's original Jewish audience. To a Jew living in Judea at this time, the east referred to the kingdom of Arabia, and more specifically to a people known as the Nabataeans. But to a Gentile Christian living in Rome, the east was interpreted as Persia or Parthia, with its capital at Babylon. And so because they read Matthew's gospel through their own worldview, they mistakenly believed the Magi to be Babylonian astrologers. The problem with this idea, which led many scholars to dismiss the Magi as a fable, is that by the time of Jesus' birth, the once powerful class of Babylonian Magi had been all but wiped out. The remaining survivors had become refugees spread throughout the ancient world. While it is possible that the Magi came from Babylon, it is improbable that they could have afforded the long journey and the expensive gifts that Matthew records, which is yet another nail in their scholarly coffin, if you will. To complicate things even further, Matthew's story of the mysterious Magi eventually captured the imaginations of Gnostic writers. 
The Gnostics were people who blended elements of Christianity with other pagan religions. They claimed to have uncovered gnosis, or secret knowledge. Their writings proliferated in the centuries following Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and include texts you may have heard of, like the Gospels of Thomas or Judas. One of the stories they embellished in these writings was that of the mystical magi from the East. To give you an example of one of these embellishments, one epic sweeping Gnostic tale claims that the wise men procured their gifts from a cave where the gifts had been placed centuries beforehand by Seth, the son of Adam, in preparation for the coming king. Eventually, in the Middle Ages, when the common man did not have access to read the biblical accounts for himself, these Gnostic legends became interwoven with the actual details as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Then came the Enlightenment, when scholars began to question these accepted traditions and legends. Essentially, it was as Tolkien wrote about the One Ring. History became legend, legend became myth. This is the danger that we face if we try to take God's epic story and fashion it into a story of our own to make it fit our own worldview. Doing so makes us unwise men and women. The scriptures still speak to us and into our modern context today? Absolutely. Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active, and so it absolutely has truths and meaning and application to speak into our modern lives. But if all that we ever do is try to fit scripture into our lives and our context and our agendas and our worldviews, then we will have missed the point. Scripture is God's story first. And as such, we must submit ourselves to God's authorship, just as the wise men bowed down and submitted themselves to Christ's kingship. So where does this leave us and our beloved nativity characters, the wise men? Do we hold on to our comforting traditions like their made-up names and supposed racial identities from Europe, Africa, and Asia? Or do we dismiss their existence, as many scholars have done? Well, here's our second truth for today. God writes a much better plot line than we could ever hope to. As a lover of movies, I sincerely hope that someday someone in Hollywood will take the most historically plausible explanation of the wise men and turn it into an epic movie, because I guarantee it would be good. While I wish I had time to share all of the amazing details and theories with you, I will try to keep my storytelling brief. So here's the story of the wise men, as you've probably never heard it before, and it begins with a man we're probably all familiar with named Abraham. Abraham had two sons, scripture tells us, Ishmael by his wife's slave Hagar, and Isaac through his wife Sarah. Isaac, we know, would go on to be the father of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, whose history we can follow by reading scripture. However, Ishmael also became the father of 12 tribes, and according to Genesis 25, they settled in the land east of Egypt, later to be known as Arabia. And almost 2,000 years later, these nomadic tribes had blended and began to rise in power because they controlled the trade routes through the desert, which you can see from the map on your screen. 
archaeologists are actually still finding out how amazing it was that they were able to control the most precious resource in the desert, and that's water. Merchants coming from the north and east needed to pass through Arabia to get to the port city of Gaza to be able to ship their goods to Rome. A little over a hundred years before the birth of Jesus, this Nabataean kingdom was firmly established under King Aretas I, with its capital city at Petra. If you don't recognize the name Petra, you may perhaps recognize its magnificent treasury building from another epic story, and you might recognize it better with these guys in front of it. This fortified city became a cosmopolitan melting pot with cultural and religious influences from all over the ancient world, including Judea and Babylon. After the elite class of Babylonian magi were deposed and slaughtered by King Darius of Persia in the time of Daniel, it is likely that some survivors found refuge in Petra. Generally in the ancient world, wise men found their way somehow into the court of the kings, and Petra was no exception. Over time, the wisdom and learning and astrology of the Babylonian refugees blended with the wisdom and learning of displaced Jews, particularly the sect of Jews known as the Essenes, whom we have to thank for preserving the Dead Sea Scrolls. And all of this also blended with the wisdom and learning of the Arabian descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. This exchange of ideas, beliefs, and religious texts, including the messianic prophecies of Isaiah, meant that by the time of the Nabataean king Aretas IV, wise men in his court were paying very close attention to the signs of the heavens, looking for the birth of the promised Messiah. For his part, King Aretas IV had a very complicated relationship with none other than Herod the Great, the evil king of Judea described in Matthew's account. For one thing, Herod himself was the son of a Nabataean princess, and so he would have been familiar with Aretas' court and customs. At the time of Jesus' birth, Herod had curried the favor of none other than Caesar Augustus, whereas Aretas was not in the emperor's good graces. So when Aretas' wise men came to him saying that the heavens had provided astrological signs that signaled the birth of a powerful new king of the Jews, he assumed it was a new heir to Herod's throne. He saw an opportunity to curry favor with his neighbor and thereby find favor with the emperor. In the ancient world, it was tradition to bring gifts and offer tribute to a new neighboring king. Whatever goods your country produced and exported was what you would offer as tribute, essentially offering your best. The Nabataeans were famous for their production and export of none other than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so these gifts were prepared as tribute. Now, the journey from Petra to Jerusalem would not have taken more than a few weeks, and the wise men would likely have been very familiar with the way there, as it was along a customary trade route. But we know from a careful reading of Matthew's account that Herod ascertained Jesus to be about one or maybe two years old, based on the wise men's report of when they had seen his sign appear in the heavens. So if the sign appeared at the time of Jesus' birth, why were they delayed? There are several possibilities, but what we do know is that after the wise men departed from Herod, Matthew says this, 
the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I find great comfort in the wise men's joy at this moment. These men knew they were not simply ambassadors of King Aretas. They knew they were involved in something far, far greater. Having been steeped in the prophecies of Isaiah and others, these men were praying, hoping, and searching for the long-awaited Messiah. And it begs the question, what did they feel when they did not find that Messiah in Jerusalem? What doubts entered their minds when all their hopes and expectations and all of their scientific understanding had failed them? Last year at this time, many of us had great hopes and expectations for 2020. Vision 2020, we all laughed. As we look back on those hopes and dreams now, some of them make us laugh, and others make us cry out in grief and anger and sorrow and pain. I think in this moment, the wise men could relate to those feelings. I imagine their disappointment and frustration was compounded when they found out that they had actually passed by not too many miles from Bethlehem, the place of the Messiah's birth, on their way to Jerusalem where they had assumed he would be born. To know they had come so close, only to have to turn around and continue their search must have been difficult and depressing. Maybe you feel like your hopes and dreams for the past year have simply passed by you, unfulfilled and undone. But then they saw it, the sign they had prayed for, trusted in, hoped in, and believed in went ahead of them, once again illuminating their path to the Messiah they so desperately longed for. And as it turns out, the wise men probably gave up everything for the brief chance to bow down and pay tribute to that Messiah. It's almost certain that although they returned to their home country, as Matthew reported, the wise men were probably never able to return to Petra or to the court of King Aretas. For his part, Aretas probably had very little interest in worshiping some prophesied Messiah. He simply wanted to win the favor of Herod and, by extension, the emperor. To him, it was all a game of political intrigue. So for his ambassadors to snub King Herod and present those precious, expensive gifts to a poor family in a backwater town that didn't even make it onto the maps of their trade routes was a massive, massive embarrassment. It's even possible that Matthew's account is lacking in some of the details that we would probably like to know in order to protect the wise men's identities from their angered king, even so many years later that Matthew is writing his account. Almost like an ancient witness protection program. For the wise men, choosing to follow their faith in the prophecies and signs of the Messiah was a choice worth giving up everything. They refused to play the games of earthly kings, choosing instead to bow down to 
for the one king that mattered. They may or may not have had some understanding of it then, but eventually that Messiah for whom they sacrificed everything about their normal everyday lives would someday give up everything and sacrifice himself to save the world. Now that is a sweeping, sweeping, epic story. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter this new year, we enter with hope and also with a lot of baggage. I pray that we would bow before you just as the wise men. And just as the wise men laid their gifts at your feet, Lord, may we lay our burdens, our weary hearts at your feet. Lord, give us the peace and the grace to accept the things that we cannot change about our world today. Help us to surrender ourselves to your authorship of our stories and not our own. We thank you for the gift that you gave us so freely. May we also give you the gift of ourselves and our stories. In your holy and precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.